of the Lord now at this time. And I'm going to take our, our lesson reading out of the 8th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, and we're going to read from the 13th verse to the 18th verse. And so beginning in the 13th verse of the 8th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And I'd like to stop right there, <clears throat> and I would like to take for a subject this morning, the, the, it's, I'm going to take it out of that 14th verse, and that is Jesus, the rock of offense. Jesus, the rock of offense. Because that's something that we really have to understand about Jesus. Isaiah, the prophet here, is prophesying about the coming of the Lord, and he's prophesying that when the Lord comes, that he will not be recognized by his own, and not only that will he not be recognized, but the things that he teaches them, they will actively reject. And we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to try to bear that out just a little bit here this morning. And, and that's what, uh, uh, and that's what they they did. If we go back and we're going to, we're going to, as we follow through, we'll see how they actively rejected Jesus, not just in one facet or another, but his whole being. They rejected him. And he was an offense to them and an affront to them. And so we look here uh, for just a, a little bit uh, over in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to look in verses 3 through 6. Uh, it says, and, 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 well, I'm just going to turn. I'm just going to turn over there, Matthew 11, three through six, uh, and uh, and and just see what uh, the pro, uh, what, Matt, what the apostle Matthew uh, had to had to say here. Eleven, starting in verse three, and so here he says, uh, uh, "This is uh, when John's disciples came to the Lord, came seeking the Lord, and the disciples of John had come to him. Uh, John has been thrust in prison, and the disciples of John come to him, and they said, Master, uh, art thou him, or art thou, uh, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Right? Are you really the Messiah uh, that we've been waiting for and looking for and longing for? Or should we move on from you and should we go instead and look for some somebody else to be the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the Messiah, uh, which had been prophesied, which Isaiah had prophesied of? And so here's what Jesus' reply was to them. He said, go and show John again the things which ye do hear and see. I'm thankful every time that the Lord does something for me that I wasn't expecting some miracle that he works in some small way or some great way. Um, and even when sometimes they don't work out the way that I think they should, they oftentimes work out better than I thought they would. And so here he says, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. Uh, he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. I, you want Jesus 
Jesus' response to the disciples of John were? Jesus' response to the disciples of John was, go and read Scripture, because everything that he reiterated to them was what the Messiah would do when he came into the world. Again, he says this, he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. That was amazing, wasn't it, when... When Lazarus lay in the tomb and he'd already been wrapped and he'd been dead for four days and Martha said, but Lord, he stinketh by this time. Jesus said, Martha, <laughs> if he's, he's going to live again. Martha says, I know, Lord, he's going to live again in the resurrection. What was Jesus' response to her? He said, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And so here, uh, he comes, uh, uh, he says that the dead are raised up and he stood there in front of that tomb. Uh, and before he said a word, first and foremost, he said, roll ye the stone away from the door of the tomb. And so what happened? Somebody had to get up and physically roll the stone away, didn't they? You know, every once in a while, the Lord says, hey, you need to go and do this thing for me so that my word might able to be might be able to be received uh, by those that are in the audience and, and, and those that are hearing it. And so here, they roll the stone away and Jesus stands before the tomb and he says, Lazarus, Come forth. Now, before that, it says that Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, why did Jesus weep? And this is, this has been a question that's been asked through the ages. Why did Jesus stand before the tomb and weep before he called Lazarus forth when just prior to that, uh, he told the disciples that he was glad that he was dead for their sakes? Uh, because the disciples still had some doubt lingering in them, didn't they? And this was going to erase all doubt in in the disciples' minds, well, except for one, and that was the one that had never believed, and that would be Judas. But Jesus, showing true compassion to Martha and Mary and, the, and their family for the loss that they had experienced, uh, and he wept for them. You know, Jesus is a very compassionate, isn't he, toward us? Now, some think he, that he wept there because he was going to have to call Lazarus down out of heaven and Lazarus was going to experience death for a second time. I don't think that's why he wept. Because he said, I'm glad he's dead for your sakes. He knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus before he went. And so he stood there and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, here he came, straight forth from the, from the grave, still bound, walking still bound, and... He said, remove the napkin from his face and remove the, the, the grave clothes from him. And I'll show you this as an example of how offended that they were of him. Not only did they seek Jesus' life after that, they also sought Lazarus' life after that because Lazarus is a walking reminder of the power of God which had been manifested in the world. And so they didn't seek just to just seek Jesus' life. They were also seeking after the life of Lazarus for this reason. And so here uh, we see that Jesus says, not only do the, uh, are the dead raised up, but above and beyond that, the poor of this world have the gospel preached unto them. The rich rule this world. Do not be under any delusions. The rich rule the world. 
They still rule the world. They ruled the world back then. They still rule the world today. Do not be under any misconceived premonitions. They rule the world. They are the ones who set the affairs of the world in order, the things that they want to be done. That's what happens. That's the way it's done. That's the way it's always been. It will always be that way in this world. Uh, But Jesus says that it's the poor that are actually to be... uh, that's the, the poor is who Jesus actually came to seek after. And why is that? Well, because it's easier for a rich, uh, for a, a poor man to enter into heaven. A rich man struggles to enter into heaven. Why? Because of his possessions, the multitude of his possessions that he has. He puts his faith and his trust and everything in those possessions. And we see this illustrated in the rich young ruler, uh, where the rich young ruler comes to the Lord and says, Lord, what is it that I must do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, keep, you know, you have the law and the prophets do them and keep them. And he looks at him and he says, Lord, all of these things I have done and kept from my youth up, what is it that I lack? And Jesus said, okay, here's the one thing that you lack. He said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me and you shall have you and you'll shall have eternal life. You'll have treasures in heaven. Because uh, that's where we're supposed to lay our treasures up in this world, isn't it? We're supposed to lay them up in heaven. Why? Because where our heart is, there our treasure where, where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And so it's the poor of this world that Jesus came and preached the gospel to. Now, there's rich people that got saved, and it's it's documented in the Scriptures that there are rich people that are got saved. It's not that they can't be saved. It's that it's harder for them to be saved. We read of a rich man who sought the body of Christ after he was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of them were wealthy. Both of them sought the body of Christ after he had been crucified. Wealth is not an impediment to salvation, spiritually speaking, but it carnally, which the carnal mind is enmity against God, carnally it causes an impediment to being saved. And so here he says, Blessed be he who whosoever shall not be offended in me. Or offended because of me is what he's really saying there. Uh, and so here today I gotta ask a question because, uh, you can say God, uh, in the society that we live in all day long and it's going to be largely ignored. Uh, God is okay to mention, but if you start mentioning Jesus and you start mentioning Christ, then you're getting very specific. And, and then, uh, some of the things in this world become manifest, don't they? The, 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 the opposition to it. Jesus is still, to this day, a rock of offense. Still to this day, a rock of offense. And uh, and we're going to look here for just a minute or two in, in the book of Matthew considering uh, concerning this topic of Jesus being a, a rock of offense. And you see, they looked at Jesus in so many ways uh, which and took offense at Him in so many ways. And we're going to touch on some of those here in the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew 13, verse 54. It says, And when He was come again into His own country, He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch as when they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man, this 
wisdom and these mighty works. And so Jesus has come into Nazareth, which is his home country. Uh, and then you would think that Jesus there being in his home country would be joyfully received by his own people. But that's not what we read about, do we? Uh, we see here in the synagogue that he's teaching. And instead of receiving it joyfully, they question it, don't they? They said, who is this man? And whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Who sent this guy here? And then they get into his background, don't they? Is this not the carpenter's son? He's not trained in Scripture. He hasn't spent his whole life studying the scrolls uh, of the prophets and the law. Uh, he hasn't, uh, or the law and the prophets. He hasn't done this. He's of a meager background. His parents are poor. Uh, isn't this the, uh, is not his mother called Mary? Uh, wasn't this guy raised in poverty? They would have looked down on him for that. They would have looked down on him for his parentage, even though both parents were of the lineage and household of David and they should have never been in the situation that they were in, but that's how far away they had gotten from God. They didn't even recognize their king. A lot of things change in this world, but I'm thankful that I know who the king of glory is. If you're here today and you don't know that, then... You've got, a, you've got a finite period of time to understand and to know who that is. Because there will not be an excuse when you stand before the king at the day of judgment. And you say, well, I thought you stood before a judge at the day of judgment. The whole point and purpose of the king is to judge. When you go and you read when they rejected God from being the king over them uh, in the Old Testament, you read there in 1 Samuel about how the, uh, the Israelites had rejected God from being king. And what was it they asked for? What is it that scriptures tell us they asked for? We want a king to judge us like all the other nations. When you rule over somebody, you're making a judgment. But we're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne of judgment one day. And we're not going to look at Him and say, look at all these works that we've done, Lord. And look at all the things that we've done in Your name. Because if we don't really know Him, if we've never uh, experienced the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, which that's the first job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sins. Uh, and then the, in the King James, actually it says to convince the world of sins. Because you have to be thoroughly convinced of your sins before you can actually seek forgiveness for those sins, don't you? And the world a lot of times will teach today that repentance is something that you do for you. Well, then you're never going to get saved if that's the paradigm that you're operating in because repentance is something that we do toward God. We turn away from what we have been. We turn toward God uh, and we seek God for forgiveness and mercy and grace because He is the one that saves. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of man. The Jews were offended because of the salvation that Jesus Christ brought into the world. 
It wasn't what they had intended. It wasn't what they had prescribed. It wasn't what they wanted. What was it that they wanted? They wanted a reconstituted kingdom, didn't they? Whose borders were set. Uh, and they wanted David to rule over them the way that they had imagined it in their va- in the vanity of their mind. But here he stood before him, and they rejected him. And by the end, they said, we have no king but Caesar. That's how much they rejected the Lord. They said, we have no king to rule over us but Caesar. Aren't his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, we know who his family is. Who does? Who is this guy to believe that he can come in here and teach as one having authority, having never been schooled, being impoverished from his birth up, uh, and believe that he has the ability to do these things? And he says, and his sisters, are they not all here with us? Uh, where then hath this man all these things? And then in the 57th verse, Matthew writes this. He says, and they were offended Now, it says in him, in the King James. A better way to look at that is they were offended at him. And you see that today, especially in this society that we live in, don't you? Everybody's offended about every little thing. Well, they they weren't offended over something small. They were offended because they viewed Jesus as an affront to everything that they held sacred and holy. And Jesus responded to them. And he said, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And then in the 58th verse, it says, I li- I, now, we're gonna, I'm going to look at the two instances here. It, Matthew records it this way and says that he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You've got to understand something. God will not override your free will. If you don't want God to do something, He won't do it. (laughs) If you want to be saved, then you've got to draw yourself to the Lord, just as the Bible teaches us. Uh, Draw yourself nigh to Him, and He will draw nigh unto you. Uh, That's what Paul preached at Mars Hill. He said, do you not know that He is not very far from any one of you? Not just collectively, but individually. He is very close to each of you. Mark said it this way. Mark said, and and he could do no mighty work. And there he could do no mighty work, save that he laid hands on a few sick folk. Now these were miraculous miracles in and of themselves. Save that he laid hands on a few sick folk there and healed them. Now those that was a couple miracles that he did, but he would have done far and away above more more than that in in Nazareth if they would have just believed, wouldn't they? And so they, they stymied Christ's ability because of their unbelief. And and I hear people ask all the time, well, what what is the unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? Well, the unforgivable sin is really simple to explain. The sin of unbelief is the unforgivable sin. Because it doesn't matter how many works you've done in the name of the Lord, if you've never known Him, He will stand there and look at you and say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And you say, well, how do I know that he knows me? Well, that's individual. And it's not, it's not, it's not something that's cloudy. 
but it's something that's revealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We've been studying about the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights. The Holy Spirit has to let us know we're convicted. The Holy that when that Holy Spirit uh, takes up residence, that's what lets you know that you're saved. Uh, you, they're a different creature, aren't you, in Christ? And that's what the Bible teaches us. Uh, and so here we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here in just a minute. Uh, Psalm 118, talking about Jesus being this rock of offense. Uh, Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go in and uh, into them, and I will praise the Lord. The gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. That's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the door by which we enter into the sheepfold. You're not going to enter in any other way. Uh, I could ask you to come up here today and shake my hand. I could ask you to come up here today to repeat this prayer. I could ask you to come up here today and be baptized if you haven't been saved none of that's worth anything it's all just a vain show it has to be real on the inside and you say well where's that how do you know what's well, just like anything else a lot of us think today our hearts up here no 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 you you'll know it because of what you feel down here because the word that's translated as heart in the in the scriptures, it has a it's a reference to the bowels, right? And so when somebody says go with your gut, trust your gut, a really really a better rendering of that is trust your heart. Because that's what's what that's what's telling you whether or not something is real or something is uh, or not or, or good or not good. Uh, it'll let you know if you're in trouble, right? When you get in trouble, what is it? Where's the first place you feel it at? The pit of your stomach, isn't it? I don't feel it up here. You feel it down here. When you get in trouble with the Lord, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Lord, I know I did the wrong thing there. And you and you seek the Lord for forgiveness. That's where the heart lies, at least scripturally. He says, In the gate of the Lord into which the, the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation, the stone which the builders refused. And Jesus is going to use, and this is the last point we're going to make here, the stone which the builders refused has become the head, head, headstone of the corner. So now you say, well, what is it talking about? So if you look at an arch... Uh, if you look at an arch that is constructed, there's one stone in that arch that if it's removed, the whole arch falls, and that's the cornerstone or the headstone. Uh, that's the keystone is what we'll oftentimes call it, right there at the top of the arch. Uh, but Jesus is the, the, the most important stone in it. Now, he's referred to this way uh, by the prophet Isaiah. He's referred to as the cornerstone, uh, and that is the foundation which is laid, of which we're built upon. And, and so here uh, the, 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 the psalmist goes on, and he says that he's become the head of the, uh, the, the headstone of of the corner, and he says, This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Aren't you glad today to know that you are a child of God? Aren't you glad today to be able to say that I know that I'm saved? that I know that my Redeemer liveth forever, and he sit on the right hand of God, uh, and he maketh intercession for me. Uh, I'm so thankful today for the intercessoring, uh, the intercessory power of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ sitting there at the right hand of God, uh, that, uh, uh, that it just tickles me to death because I know that uh, I'm going to fail all the time. That's the nature of man. We fail, don't we? Uh, but Jesus is there as an inter to make intercession on our behalf. 
Uh, now this part right here, uh, this, this mention of this, uh, that, uh, that the psalmist made, the stone which the builders refused, that would have been the Israelites, later known as the Jews, has become the head of the cornerstone. And so we're going to touch right here, we're going to close out with this. We're going to close with a couple verses here. And we're going to go to Second Peter. Sorry, First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. And I don't think there's a word that can describe Christ to someone who believes in Christ better than the word precious. And if you actually get into what that word means and the, the root of that word, it means that he's not just precious, but he is the preciousness of the precious. And that's what Jesus is for those of us that believe. He is precious. Uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone. A tried stone. A precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. We tried, we tried to preach about this uh, last week or maybe it was the week before. But Jesus is the foundation upon which our faith is laid. That's why if you're here today and you're lost, I always look at a lost person as a construction site. Because everything that their world was built upon before they come in contact with Christ and the Holy Ghost, it all has to be torn away. It all has to be torn down. Just like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, that house has to come tumbling down. But not just that house. We've got to excavate down to where we can lay a...